Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to search the Scriptures again with us as we continue to investigate Jesus and Paul's favorite topic, the Kingdom of God. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself the question, what is the Christian gospel? What did Jesus challenge his audience to believe as the gospel or good news? What did he mean by the phrase so often found on his lips, the kingdom of God? When did you last hear a preacher or evangelist invite us to repent and believe in the gospel about the kingdom of God, as Jesus invited his audiences to do in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15? We've been echoing the words of a prominent evangelical speaker of our time who says that he's convinced that our lack of clarity on the most basic matter of all, the gospel, is the greatest detriment to the work of the church in our day. Now, the gospel is the one term that we cannot afford to misinterpret. Remember the passion with which Paul invade against any distortion any addition to or any subtraction from the gospel as he preached it. His warnings are found in Galatians chapter 1. Now, the same evangelical speaker to whom I referred just now says also that as he studied the issue of the gospel in the New Testament, he has become, and I quote, acutely aware that most modern evangelism, both witnessing and preaching, falls far short of presenting the biblical gospel in a balanced and biblical way. The more I've examined Jesus' public ministry, says this spokesman for evangelicals, the more apprehensive I have become about the methods and content of contemporary evangelism. On a disturbing number of fronts, the message being proclaimed today is not the gospel according to Jesus. That's the reason why we're calling these programs Focus on the Kingdom. We feel that there's an urgent need to define clearly what it is that we're supposed to believe in order to be saved. We've been noticing that faith is simply a matter of believing. Faith is putting your trust in the words of Jesus Christ. But in some circles there's an alarming neglect of the words of Jesus Christ. The gospel as Jesus preached it seems to get rather little airing these days. It seems to be tacitly assumed that there was no gospel until Jesus died and rose again. But that contradicts the plain teaching of Jesus himself. He said that he'd finished the work which God had given him to do in John 17:4, and that was before he died. He said also that he came to preach the gospel of the kingdom. That's the reason for which he was sent in Luke 4:43. Now, it's of course true that the death and resurrection of Jesus are essential elements in the Christian gospel, but the death and resurrection of Jesus do not form the whole of the gospel. It is untrue to say that Jesus came to do only three days' work. It's untrue to say that half the gospel is the death of Jesus and the other half is his resurrection. What then happened to all of the work that Jesus did as a gospel preacher before his death? Those essential teachings are the foundation of Christianity, and it is that focus on the kingdom that we're stressing in these programs. There's an unfortunate tradition, and a long-standing one, which minimizes the importance of Jesus' own teaching while he was here on the earth. Have you ever noticed that the standard creeds of the churches tend to overlook what it was that Jesus did for that three and a half years 
as he laboured in Galilee. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the so-called Nicene Creed. Sunday after Sunday, in some churches, people recite what they're supposed to believe. Now, there's nothing wrong with creeds, of course, provided they're true to the Bible. But this Nicene Creed says, I believe in the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again. Did you notice that the creed hustled right over the gospel-preaching ministry of Jesus? Not a word was said about what he did from his birth to his death. That's amazing. I thought Jesus came to preach salvation, but this creed makes no reference at all to the life and ministry of Jesus in Palestine. And here's another thing to think about. Often we think of God's plan in terms of the creation and then the birth of Jesus. We skip right over the Hebrew Bible and thus over 77% of the entirety of Scripture. We omit all the foundational material in that 77% of the Scriptures known as the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. But it's really a disaster to try to understand Jesus unless we have a solid background in those Scriptures which nurtured Him, namely that 4,000 years of preparation when God worked through His prophets the spokesman he chose from the people of Israel. Many commentators have observed that there's often been a sinister anti-Semitic tendency in the churches. Not only have we relegated the Hebrew Bible to something that doesn't have immediate relevance to us, but the Christian church has sometimes been openly anti-Semitic. Do you know that at the beginning of the Nazi regime in Germany, a major church denomination actually used to display swastikas over its pulpits. I wonder if you know that a leading Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, to whom many look as a kind of second Paul, at one point in his ministry uttered these words, I would rather drown a Jew than baptize one. Now that's hardly likely to inspire confidence, you would think, and yet some have tended to swallow uncritically a whole system of theology and Bible study dating from the time of the Reformation. The same reformer, Martin Luther, said he did not think much of the book of Revelation, and he called the book of James an epistle of straw, in German ein Strohbrief. And you know why? Because he could not make the book of James fit with his own theory of salvation by what he called faith alone. Now, of course, salvation is indeed by faith in Jesus and his message, but faith without obedience and faith without works does not count as biblical faith. Let me make that point clearly from two scriptural passages. In Hebrews 5 verse 9, we read that Jesus became to all those who obey him the source of salvation in the coming age. And so obedience there is a condition of salvation as presented to us in the Bible. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, we read that by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was going to receive as an inheritance. You notice that faith was accompanied by obedience. So faith in the Bible is never to be separated from the idea of doing what God and Jesus tell us to do. Faith and obedience are inextricably linked together. And so it can be potentially misleading to speak of salvation by faith alone, unless we also remember the companion verse in James chapter 2, verse 24, 
where James said that you see that a man is in good standing with God by works and not by faith alone. Now, it was Martin Luther, the author of the famous statement, Salvation by Faith Alone, who certainly displayed a great deal of courage in standing up against the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church at that time, who also, however, expressed his aversion to the book of Revelation. In 1522, he said that the book of Revelation had every mark of not being apostolic or prophetic. He said he could not see that it was the work of the Holy Spirit. He said he didn't like the threats and commands found in the book. He thought that no one could understand the book of Revelation, and he gave his opinion of the book in these words. I quote, My spirit cannot adapt itself to this book, and a sufficient reason why I do not esteem it highly is that Christ is neither taught nor recognized in the book of Revelation. End of quotation from Martin Luther. Even later, in 1545, Luther still relegated the book of Revelation to the appendix of his New Testament translation, along with Hebrews, James, what he called an epistle of straw, and the book of Jude. And another leading reformer, Swingley, considered that the book of Revelation was not a biblical book. Now, I bring before you these facts to show that none of these so-called church fathers of the Protestant Reformation should be considered on a level with the writers of the Bible. We must not accept uncritically the works of men who wrote many years after the canon of Scripture was completed. You cannot pick and choose between books as Luther did. We have to accept the whole counsel of God. It should raise a few eyebrows, this fact that Luther, who has a massive influence in the West, actually rejected the book of Revelation and depreciated the book of James. These are serious matters. Let me tell you something about the tradition derived from Calvin, another of the great reformers, who is taken as an almost infallible hero by some. Calvin made a considerable mistake when he accused the disciples of being blind and ignorant when they asked their famous question in Acts 1, verse 6. In that verse, the apostle said to Jesus, Has the time now come for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? Calvin, in his commentary, says of that question, There are more errors in that question of the disciples than there are words. Now, that's an amazing criticism, which tells us much about Calvin's lack of sympathy with the Jewish Christian outlook of the apostles. You see, Jesus was a Jew, and his gospel preaching is thoroughly based on its Hebrew origins in the Hebrew Bible, what we unfortunately call the Old Testament. Jesus never doubted that the kingdom would indeed be restored to Israel. How could he, when that's what all the prophets before him had announced? And Jesus would never have doubted this. He taught the apostles to revere the Hebrew Bible. Jesus instructed them fully in the secrets of the kingdom, God's kingdom plan, that is. And so, working out of their knowledge and understanding, which was far in advance of our own, they asked, Is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus did not rebuke them as Calvin did. Jesus merely said that it was not for the apostles, or for us for that matter, to know exactly when this restoration of Israel was going to happen. Only God knew that. But that the kingdom of God will be restored to Israel is absolutely plain from Scripture. Jesus obviously believed that it would. 
We know this from the simple fact that in his last conversation with the apostles before he died, he confirmed the reward that he had promised them from the beginning. He first commended them for staying with him through various trials, and he then told them that in the coming kingdom he would appoint them as administrators over the regathered tribes of Israel. Here are these wonderful words of Jesus. Just as my Father has covenanted with me to give me a kingdom, so I covenant with you to give you a kingdom, and you will be enthroned on twelve thrones to govern the twelve tribes of Israel. You read that in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 30, and a similar statement in Matthew 19, verse 28. A massive confusion has arisen in the minds of some when they believed that the kingdom about which Jesus was speaking there began at the ascension of Jesus. But the apostles, I have to tell you, are not now ruling the twelve tribes of Israel. The regathering of Israel is to be on the earth in the future. In our next program, I would like to demonstrate that fact clearly from Scripture itself. The ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father marked the outpouring of the Spirit upon the church. The kingdom the disciples inquired about in Acts 1.6 still awaits a time in the future. Let's examine that important fact in our next program. We invite you to check our findings in the Bible and join us again as we continue our discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the kingdom of God.